All right, well, over the past month and a half, we've seen Jesus use these, these I am statements to communicate elements of his character. He's used these culturally relevant motifs for the Hebrew people. All right, he claimed to be the bread of life during the Passover, a time when the people would be reminiscing over the miraculous manna that God provided in the wilderness. He asserted that he was the light of the world as he brought physical light to a man who had been blind from birth. He put forth his positive leadership as the good shepherd during a celebration of Hanukkah when they would be reflecting on their leadership, the wicked religious and monarchs through their nation's history. And so this morning we get to the final I am statement of Jesus. And we're going to see Jesus use a loaded metaphor to assert the need for us to be in relationship with him and this new direction that God was taking his chosen people. So if you want to pull out your Bibles, we're going to be looking at John chapter 15, and we're going to read the first roughly dozen verses. Now this is part of the, what's called the upper room discourse. This is the time uh, that Jesus was with his disciples before his betrayal. This is the same collection of quotes of dialogue that we read from last week. And here in John 15, we'll see Jesus use an extended metaphor to capture the imagination of his hearers in a relevant context. Right? He's comparing himself to a vine, which was a very significant image in the culture and history of Israel. So if hopefully you've had a chance to find that. John 15, I'm going to read verses 1 through 11. Follow along as I read that, please. I am the true vine. And my father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes, that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit, for apart from me you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers. And the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire, and burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. By this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Abide in my love." If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. So Jesus states that he is the vine, and this may not seem too out of the ordinary. Most of his metaphors or his parables come from the agricultural world. And this is the context of most of the members of their society they were familiar with. They lived in what they called an agrarian society. But the vine specifically had a very rich history in the nation of Israel. 
In the Old Testament, the vine was used as a symbol for the nation of Israel itself. Numerous passages throughout the prophets and the wisdom literature characterize Israel as a vine. Take Psalm 80, verses 8 through 11. It says this, You have brought a vine out of Egypt. You drove out the nations and planted it. You cleared the ground for it. It took deep root and filled the land. These mountains were covered with its shade, the mighty cedars with its branches. It sent out its branches to the sea and its shoots to the river. It's very clear that that's a reference to Israel. But not all of the Old Testament passages are positive. Many of them, especially in the prophets, uh, are, are used at times when God is chastising the nation for not bearing fruit the way that they should. Often they're words of judgment when they're not doing what God expects of them. In Isaiah 5, God scolds them for not producing cultivated grapes, but instead are producing wild ones. In Jeremiah 2, God is expressing, expressing his confusion that he's, you know, planting, he planted an heirloom seed and took care of it only to have it turn into, you know, and run wild as a wild vine, not cultivated. Hosea 2 describes Israel like a vine which produced some good fruit, but the more prosperous that it became, the more it got a little too full of itself. Building altars, showing devotion to other gods. For good or ill, the Hebrew people grabbed a hold of this characterization of their nation as a vine. Josephus, who was a first century Jewish historian, he wrote about a grapevine of gold used to represent Israel that was located at the opening of the temple in Jerusalem. Citizens would, would bring gifts of gold to be added to the vine. The gold would be fashioned into new grapes or leaves or shoots in this masterful work. Josephus records that these, some, that these grapes clusters, were, some of them were as tall as a grown man. I mean, this was a work of art and national pride. Rumor has it that when the Romans came and burnt Jerusalem to the ground in 70 AD, you know, pillaging all of their resources, that the, there was so much gold taken from these vine sculptures that it depressed the, the value of gold in Syria by a half. Right? This vine was a symbol of their national identity. You know, much in the same way that that's those, those of you who, who follow college football or attended college, right? The college football mascot is viewed as an embodiment of the culture, an embodiment of the image of the school. So it's not surprising that when Jesus comes to town, one of his regular metaphors was that of a vine. He tells the story of laborers who were hired by a manager at different times of the day. But when when, you know, the paycheck came, they all received the same wages. But what was the setting of that work? It was a vineyard that they went to work in. But something that we see as Jesus uses this motif of the vine in his teaching is that he's reorienting the understanding of who it is that represented the vine and, and Israel's place in it. Matthew 21, 33 to 44, Jesus tells another parable that involves a vineyard, right? This is the story that you may be familiar with. The master uh, plants this vineyard. He leaves some tenants behind to tend the crops, to keep after it. When it's harvest time, he sends servants to go collect the produce, to collect the fruit. 
And the servant that is sent is beaten and killed. And so the master sends another one. And it keeps going and keeps escalating until the master sends his own son, thinking, all right, this is going to earn me the respect to get what is due to me. But he too is killed by the tenants. Jesus says that in response, the master gets rid of the existing tenants and replaces with them with ones that are going to be more faithful. Jesus says in 21.43, he says, Matthew 21.43, Therefore I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing its fruits. So Jesus is suggesting with this parable that Israel is being supplanted as God's vine or the caretakers of God's vine. Now, this is all background to what Jesus says in the passage that we read this morning, our passage. But note, he's not describing a third-party vine. This isn't like a parable that, that he said earlier where he's weaving the story of something outside of himself. No, here he said in verse 1 that he is the vine. He is the true vine. Now, this is really revolutionary stuff for a, a Jewish person to be saying. He's saying it's not Israel, but it's him that is the true planting of God. Right? He has replaced Israel as the primacy of that planting. This is John's equivalent to that controversial statement I just described out of Matthew, right? Now, the definition of what it means to be a person of God is not being planted in the vineyard of Israel. It's not based upon privilege of your family's origin. It's about being attached to Jesus himself. All right, God's vineyard, Jesus says, has one vine. Who is it that is attached to him? Now, how does this connection work? In verse, verses 4 and following, Jesus uses this language of abiding. Some translations say remaining in him. If we want to be connected to God, we first need to be connected to Jesus. Now, this part of the metaphor describes our interior spiritual life, what's going on inside of us. Right? Because just as, and he describes this, a, a vine is going to shrivel and die if it's not connected to its root network, so too, if we aren't adequately connected to Jesus, we're going to wither. Jesus is our sustaining power for life. Our nourishment is conditional upon whether or not we remain attached to him. We sang in that, that song, As the Deer, that I want you more than gold or silver. Oftentimes in life, we want the gold and silver because that's what seems to make the world go round. But what Jesus is saying is, truly, if you want life, you need to be connected to me. Look at what Jesus says at the end of verse 5. He says, apart from me, you can do nothing. I mean, those words might seem a little extreme, a little bit like hyperbole, but Jesus is just reflecting the fact that we are utterly dependent upon him. I mean, think about it from the, the world of gardening or plants. Right, let's just say you go and buy a bouquet of flowers at the local florist. They're freshly cut. Right, they're going to be brilliant. You stick them in water. You mix the plant food into that water, and a day goes by. The house smells like flowers. They're still bright and radiant. But a few more days go by and the flowers have lost a little bit of their luster, a little bit of their sheen, wilting maybe ever so slightly. But as the days and, if you're lucky, weeks go by, 
the flowers continue to decline until it's just time to toss them in the trash can. Right? Separated from the stalk, separated from that root system, the flowers cannot continue to thrive. They just can't. You know, we use that plant food, you know, mix it in that water, and that helps to, to lengthen the time that they remain alive, but in the end, they're going to die. I would argue that's what happens to us spiritually when we are disconnected from Jesus. We might feel like we're doing okay for a little while. You know, maybe we've got like a certain podcast that we listen to, or you listen to K-Love in the car, and it's kind of like that plant food. It can kind of keep you going. It can lengthen the time where we appear to be spiritually healthy. But in the end, apart from Jesus, our spiritual lives are going to continue to decline until they are a wilted version of ourself. Because apart from Jesus, apart from him, we can't do anything. What does Jesus say the purpose of the vine is, right? Is it just to, you know, like the flowers that you might get and put in your house? Is it just to grow and look nice? Ultimately, what we see in our passage is that the goal is to produce fruit. Now, as I believe you read, as you read the New Testament, the evidence of faithful connection to Jesus, the evidence of true faith, true belief in God, abundant spiritual health, the, the test of that often is fruitfulness. I shouldn't say test because I'm going to say it's not a test in a minute. The evidence of that is fruitfulness, right? And again, apart from Jesus, we can't develop the fruit that we need to. A couple of weeks ago, we were discussing in small group the parable of the soils found in Mark chapter 4. You might be familiar with the story, right? A a man goes to sow some seed and he kind of throws it very haphazardly, uh, again, very, very liberally might be a better word, and the, the, those seeds fell in four different types of places. You know, you've got the hard soils, uh, something like uh, sidewalks or roads. You've got the rocky soil amidst a bunch of weeds and then the good soil. Three of the four soils produced some growth, but only one of the four produced fruit. Now, there isn't consensus across the spectrum of Christian teaching of how many of those groups are Christians, right? Because that's what we want to know, right? If I, if I grow up, you know, it, you know, have some spiritual growth, but then, you know, get choked out by the weeds, am I still a Christian, right? That, that, that's the kind of questions that we ask. And there's not, there's not consensus on that. The seed does grow in multiple soils, but only the good soil is the one that produces fruit, Again, as you read the scriptures time and again, I think you see the presence or lack thereof of fruit as evidence of whether or not someone was included in the kingdom. So as a result, as we read John 15, as we see Jesus talking about being the vine and remaining attached to the vine so that we produce fruit, we as Christians, of course, are going to want to produce fruit. It's essential to do so that we remain connected to Jesus. Abide in him, as he says. Now, later in our passage, he gives a few examples of what that might look like. Verse 7, he showcases the relationship between abiding in him and remaining in his word, regularly reading the scriptures to stay connected to that special revelation of God. I'll I'll use this as another opportunity to plug the daily Bible reading plan, right? Because I know that Bible can be a daunting book and can be hard to understand. It seems really thick. Where do I even start? Each day, reading one chapter of Scripture. We started a little over two years ago. We're past halfway through. 
But the point is staying tethered to the Word of God helps us stay connected to Jesus, reminds us of who He is and who we are. Verses 9 and 10, Jesus tells us to abide, to remain in His love. So abiding is not just intellectual. It's not just like reading and studying His Word, but it is also, there's an emotional component to it. You can have the answers to every theological conundrum, but if you don't have that divine love, Paul describes it as a, as a clanging symbol, right? There's a whole lot of noise without any beauty in it. Staying fixed upon that relational affection for Jesus and the Father. When we go to prayer, do we go to prayer to God in adoration and thanksgiving? Right? Do we have a desire to just sit at his feet like Mary did, gleaning from him? Or do we go to God with a list of prayer requests? God, God listens and moves on our behalf, but how we go to God often shows a lot about our heart, a lot about our desire for intimacy with him. Right? Jesus invites us to remain connected to him so that we would produce, that we would bear fruit. Now, the last thing I want to touch on before getting to application is this language of pruning of, and of cutting off that Jesus mentions here in verse 2. We see both those actions described. And I want to clarify the difference between them, right? Because on a surface lem- level, they seem similar. In, in both situations, something is being trimmed. Something is being removed from the body of that vine, But there's an important difference going back to what I discussed a few moments ago. Because the difference of what is trimmed off and what is cut off is the bearing of fruit. That which bears fruit is trimmed so that it would bear more fruit. Now this is a a, a common practice in gardening or uh, viticulture, you know, vine dressing. You trim branches away, right, cleaning them up a little bit so that there is a better opportunity for fruit bearing in the future. In verse 3, right on the heels of this, Jesus says that the disciples are already clean because of the word that he spoke to him. Now, it's important. There's a relationship between the two because pruning, the Greek word for pruning that is used is this word kathairo, and that's actually from the same root for the word cleaning, Kathero, kathairo, kathero. There's a relationship. Through this pruning, there is a cleansing that happens as well. But, as he says in verse 2, if there's no fruit developing, it gets cut off, it gets taken away, and verse 6 shows the consequences of those branches. They wither and they're, they're firewood, they're kindling. Now, if we understand that, you bear fruit, You get pruned, you don't bear fruit, you get cut off and thrown into the fire. The next logical step is to to go, oh crap, I better make sure that I'm working really hard to God's glory. I gotta make sure that I'm bearing fruit so he doesn't cut me off as dead weight. That's where it's very natural to go. It's a natural implication, but I would say that that perspective is wrong. It's unbiblical, it's errant. Because fruit bearing is never meant to be a test for us. Think about what Paul says in Galatians chapter 5. This is verses 22 and 23. This is the, the fruit of the Spirit. But the fruit of the Spirit 
Not the fruit of my hard work, not the fruit of my effort, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. I can't, I can't attain these things just by sheer effort or force of will. My son is a, a, a huge Dragon Ball Z fan, Dragon Ball Super. I have to confess, I enjoy it as well. Uh, it's, a, it's, a dra- it's a Japanese anime that depicts a, a goofy and somewhat dim-witted protagonist named Goku. He's a guy that comes from humble means but ends up being the strongest fighter in the galaxy. But there's all these, in the series, there's all these epic battles. And what happens when these battles are, he's preparing for these battles, you have an episode or two where Goku is just like sitting there, he's like charging up. There's a lot of screaming, a lot of like fire around him, basically concentrating enough to raise his battle power, right? Because just by his own force, he can raise his fighting prowess, or he can go to a, you know, level that they call Super Saiyan. But that's not how the fruit of the Spirit works, right? I can't just sit here real hard, tense all my muscles and be like, all right, I've just moved my joy from level three to level seven. You know, I just doubled my patience. It doesn't work like that. The development of these fruits in our lives is not about us forcing ourselves to grow in those ways. No more than if you plant a garden, you can't force your tomatoes to grow. There's a lot you can do to cultivate it, to make it you know, a hospitable environment for them to grow, but you cannot force your plants to grow. The development of these fruits in our lives is due to the work of the Spirit in us. Sometimes that's going to be faster than we want. Sometimes it's going to be slower than we want. But a lesson that I continue to learn, and I just need to, I mean, I know this. I know it up here, but I don't often know it down here. Sometimes that foot, foot and a half is a really long process to get there. But a lesson that I keep learning is that nowhere in Scripture do I see that God's expectation of me is based around productivity. Let me, let me say that again. God's perspective of me, my inclusion in his kingdom, his love for me is not based upon my productivity. There's not a quota. There's not a threshold which he expects me to cross or else I might lose my job, i.e. salvation. Instead, what I find time and time again in the scriptures is what he calls me to, he calls all of us to, is faithfulness. Are we being faithful? Am I remaining connected to Jesus? Am I drinking deeply in my soul the nourishment that comes from him. Because the fruit is not something that we can perform. It's not something we can force. They are natural byproducts of our relationship with Jesus. So let's start bringing this home to us. Let's see how this might affect us or think about it in our lives. Let's start with pruning, because that's hopefully fresh on, on, on our minds. Our fruitfulness in the gospel is not a test. It is not the measuring stick that God uses to say whether or not we are in or out. It is evidence of the connection. Those things might sound similar, and they're kind of like two sides of a similar coin, but I think they're, they're far apart. They're, it's important to distinguish the difference. 
Because if it's a test, right, think about being at school. I got to work really hard. I got to study so that I pass the test. Evidence is revealing something about me. If I, whether I see it or not reveals something about me so that perhaps I can cultivate things a little bit different. It is the evidence. So if there is no fruit, I would suggest maybe you want to see if you've disconnected yourself from that life-sustaining vine of Jesus. We should look like we are attached to the source. We should look like we're growing. Again, it's not a test, but it is the evidence. But the result of bearing fruit is that we're pruned. Pruning means that there's going to be pain in our lives. God's going to snip away the parts of us that are dead. He doesn't remove us completely from the vine, but there are parts of our spiritual lives that are dead weight that need to be jettisoned. But part of the problem is, as a people, we often prefer comfort over character. You know, there's, there's that saying like, don't ever pray for patience because he'll give you opportunities to be patient. And, you know, it's, it's a tongue-in-cheek, you know, idea, uh, a tongue-in-cheek statement. But the truth is sometimes we don't want that. Like, we want to be patient, but we don't really want God to put us through those situations that are going to force us to grow in the, the situations of patience. Yeah. Or we experience pain and we assume that we're doing something wrong, as if God would only allow pain in our lives as punishment for our misdeeds. But pruning, as we see in this passage, is a natural part of the Christian life. Other places in Scripture def- describe this as refining, you know, a metal being melted down to remove impurities so that it can finish. And again, melting down I think of myself as a metal being stuck in a fire to burn, you know, melt down does not sound pleasant. But the purpose of it is so that those impurities can be removed and the, the metal can be a, a, a more pure and precious version of itself. Pruning is for our benefit. It's utilized so that we can be more fruitful. The passage immediately following what we read this morning, picking up at verse 12 and following shows the next step in what that fruitfulness looks like. Loving others. Loving one another. Jesus commands his followers, his disciples, to love each other the same way that he loved them. Now let's think about that for a minute. Right? Jesus, I mean, we can go to the, the natural place, right? Christ was willing to die for them, and that's the point where Jesus says, you know, there's greater love is... There is no greater love than this that someone lay down their life for their friend. So that's clearly a model for it. But what I want us to think about on for a minute is how Jesus, just a couple chapters earlier, showed his love to his disciples by washing their feet, by taking the place of a servant before them. Something that it it was not someone in his position to do. And frankly, that's why you have Peter being like, don't wash my feet, because if Jesus washes my feet, then what might I have to do to someone else? But think about that. Who did, whose feet did he wash? Peter, James, John, the disciples he was closest with. But somewhere in that place, that process, he washed the feet of Judas, the one who was going to betray him. Jesus was not selective. He didn't withhold his love from the one who would cause him harm, but generously gave it to all. And I've got to confess, I'm not there yet. 
That's a hard thing to do. But that's the model that Jesus set before us, to love even those that might inflict pain in us. The last thing I want to consider as we wrestle with this passage is the place of discipleship. Right? Jesus' final commands to his disciples in the Gospel of Matthew, uh, what's often called the Great Commission, is he tells them to take the things that they've heard, take the things that they've learned, and teach them to others. Make disciples of others. Replicate it with someone else. But my experience in this thing called discipleship has largely been cerebral. I've sat with mentors who have challenged my theology. They've encouraged me to memorize scripture. All good things. But I think those models of discipleship are missing a key component that is addressed in this passage. I like the way that Gary Burge defines discipleship this way. He says, discipleship is a way of thinking, doctrine, a way of living, ethics, and a supernatural experience that cannot be compared with anything else in the world. Discipleship is more than just increasing my knowledge or doctrine. It's more than someone challenging me to live by a specific code of ethics, right? It is those things, but it also describes this spiritual experience, this interior spiritual life, pursuing greater intimacy with Jesus, the very type of intimacy that Christ is talking about here in John 15. Abide with me, remain with me, stay connected to me. But I think why we miss this in discipleship is because it's difficult to quantify, right? I can measure how many verses I've memorized. I can memorize the chapters that I've read or studied in a systematic theology textbook. I can put little check marks afterwards. I can measure how much of the Bible I've read or how many times I've read it. I can recollect my decisions in life, determine whether or not I feel like positively, are are they positively reflecting the ethics of Jesus or not? There's ways I can document those experiences, but how? How do I quantify remaining connected to the vine of Jesus? Like I said, the fruit is the evidence of it, but how do I know that I'm doing it well? It's an intangible experience, as Burge says, that can't be compared to anything else in our world. We've got no tangible metric for it. All we have is the evidence of that fruitfulness not as a test, but a byproduct of that relationship. But sometimes it's easier to just try to measure those things that we can control, like how much Bible I've read. This week, I want you to focus on, think about your connection to Jesus as a primary element of your discipleship. Take inventory of the time. Do you do stuff for Jesus compared to being with Jesus. And all the former stuff is good. It's important. We're called to to bring glory to his name. But are we using that doing stuff for Jesus as a replacement of spending time with him? I think this can be a good litmus test of that intimacy. Are you satisfied in Jesus himself, or are you looking for Jesus plus something? Jesus and a promotion. Jesus and less chaos at home. Jesus and a spouse. Right? The psalmist said, as we sang this morning, that as the deer pants for the stream, so my soul thirsts for you. Is that the cry of your heart? Right? Is Jesus that source of sustenance that you are utterly dependent upon? 
In a minute, I'm gonna share uh, the reflection questions and then close in prayer, but to, to, to close out our service this morning, instead of us standing and singing a song together, I'm gonna play a song, and I want you to use it as a time of reflection. Right? Think about the lyrics and think about um, your relationship with Jesus. The song is called Satisfied in You by Brian Eichelberger. Use it as an opportunity to reflect on the state of your intimacy with Jesus. Are you connected to the life-giving, life-sustaining root of Christ? Or are you allowing all the good church stuff to be kind of like that plant food, you know, keeping you going, but ultimately it's, it can't deliver in the end? Right, go to God in prayer. Use this as a reset button to reconnect with him on that spiritual, exper- experiential dimension that's so difficult to quantify. Right. Here's some, some questions to think through this week. How do you pursue intimacy with Jesus? What does that look like? Are you making time for connection with him? If not, what do you need to do to change that? Again, is, that's that, are you doing a lot of stuff? Maybe you, you, you got a lot of behaviors that are good behaviors that you're doing for him, but don't let that replace the need to be with him. Second, who are the people that God has put in your life that are tough to love? How can you model Jesus' love even for Judas as you interact with them? You know, there's this kind of tongue-in-cheek comment you may have heard. Uh, you know, we all experience people that they, they're, they're called, uh, you know, extra grace required folks. You know, they, make great, they might grate on us a little bit, a little tough, but they are our brothers and sisters with Christ, and so we're called to love them. What does that look like, loving them? How do you do that? And lastly, um, you know, when you encounter pain in your life, right, do you automatically go to this place that God's somehow unhappy with you, right? It's like this Christianized, pseudo-Christian version of karma that like, oh, I, did, I screwed up, that's why God's punishing me. Instead, how can we reorient to see pain as God's pruning work for better fruitfulness? Let's go to God in prayer, and then we'll close with that final song. Lord, as we consider you as the vine, may we inventory our lives right now. May we inventory our lives in a way that we would focus this week and, and beyond to staying connected to you. Lord, that we would see not the American dream, not our work, not our family, not any of these things that put before us or gifts that you've given us that are good as our identity, but that we would see life as being connected to you, Christ. Help us learn how to do that more and more and build in us the fruitfulness that would be evidence, reminding us that we are yours and that we are growing. May that be a source of encouragement for us this week. We pray this and lift this up to you in the precious name of Christ. Amen.